This episode of Continuing Mission is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Continuing Mission, our look at the ways in which fans are keeping Star Trek alive. I'm your host, Christopher Jones. The primary focus of this show is fan series and films, and these projects present a great opportunity to fill in the many blanks that were left by the six officially produced television series. Sometimes these blanks involve lost eras of Federation history, and sometimes they are more focused on specific characters. A new project by Dan Thill called Star Trek Futures is the latter, focusing on Beverly and Wesley Crusher. But it's more than just the backstory to TNG. Star Trek Futures brings with it an interesting twist. Today, I'm joined by Dan to learn more about the project, what led him to this particular story, and what he hopes to accomplish by looking back at the Crusher's lives before the Enterprise D. Hello, Dan. Thanks for taking some time out for me tonight and joining me here on Continuing Mission to talk about your project, Star Trek Futures. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. How are you, Chris? I'm doing well also. Thanks. So let's talk about Star Trek Futures. There are so many projects out there, and this one is really unique. I want to find out all about it from you tonight. But before that, I like to just know how people get into Star Trek to a level that leads them to create fan films and fan series like this. So do you remember your first encounter with Star Trek or do you remember the first episode that you saw? Um, you know, it's, I don't remember the first episode that I saw. I know I was, I was born in 87, so it syncs up perfectly with TNG (laughs) Um, but I know there are pictures and photo albums somewhere of like me at my grandma's house, you know, in like a little diaper or something running around and on the TV is Star Trek TNG. So it's just been in my life for so long. TNG was such a big part of, of growing up, especially when it went into syndication because it was just on so much. I would come home from school and like Spike TV had like four hours of, of Star Trek, um, yeah. like two hours of TNG and like two hours of Space Nine or Voyager or whatever. So it's just kind of always been a part of uh, a part of my life. And then, you know, sort of as I started getting a little bit older, I kind of I did drift away from it for a while. But, you know, in like the last, I don't know, five or six years, I've really gotten back into it. Um, I've mm-hmm. rewatched all the series again. And it's just now that they're on Netflix too, is like really, really helpful because yeah. there's no commercials. You don't have to get interrupted. And then when the next one comes on, you're like, okay, I'll watch another one. That's fine. Well, then if you play through the web browser, which I used to do before I started accessing Netflix through Apple TV, it would just go right into the next episode. So yep. you could just like play it. And if you played like three or four in a row, it would pause it for a minute just to make sure you didn't fall asleep or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ask you to click to go on. You know, it's interesting that you say that you got out of it for a while because people would probably be surprised to know because I published this huge network of Star Trek podcasts 
that I also kind of fell out of Star Trek for not six or seven or eight years, but probably like three or four years went by where it wasn't that I never, ever watched Star Trek, but I didn't watch it every day. I wasn't that immersed in it. And then yeah. I got back into it and then it led to this. Right, right. I think it was kind of like I had gotten out of high school, you know, I was in college. I, um, I'm a musician and I was in like two or three bands and, you know, doing that basically 24 hours a day. Um, that kind of took precedent and I was, you know, like every kid after they get out of college, they're like, Oh, I'm going to be like artsy and blah, 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 blah. And, yeah. You know, it's watching some sci-fi TV show may or may not be kind of like the mold that you're trying to fit in. But then you get to a point and you're like, I really love this thing and I want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And so especially like watching it, you become a part of it again. Um, and you relive all those memories of, of seeing it so long ago. And now, especially with um, the way that you are able to create a fan film, now I can actually be a part of it in creating it. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be able to have something that you can come back to after so long. Definitely. So let's talk about the concept and the genesis of Star Trek Futures. With Star Trek Futures, you're telling one of those lost era stories filling in an important gap in the lives of characters, and in this case, two key next-generation characters, Dr. Mm -hmm. Beverly Crusher and Wesley Crusher. I wanted to find out the concept of this and how it first came to you, but listening to you talk there about the fact that you were born in 87 when TNG was premiering, Wesley Crusher, you're sort of the reverse, well, not exactly the reverse. I was in high school. I was finishing high school when TNG premiered. So for me, Wesley was sort of like my age, maybe mm-hmm. a year younger or something. And for people who really grew up with TOS in first run, Wesley was the kid. They're looking right. at him as the kid. But you're looking at him as a younger person and he's older. Did that have anything to do with you deciding that you wanted to tell the story about Wesley and his father, Jack, and his mother? Uh, it. I believe that it did. I mean, like subconsciously... I think that's what it was, but naturally I you know, it didn't, it just seemed like that's the story that I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, as I started to like really rewatch this stuff, I connected with the character Wesley a lot. And especially when, um, we, we kind of delved into the past of his father, I started kind of seeing a lot of parallels between my life and his life, not to the same extent, you know, my father is not dead, but, Wesley's father was gone for most of his life. He never really knew his father. And he uh, grew up in kind of a single, you know, family unit, which is what I did. Um, uh, my yeah, parents split when I was me. about six. Yeah, I was um, five and so, when it, yeah. My parents split, yeah. So I, I, I connected with the character in that way, in that Beverly was a strong female um, mother character. And I felt the same way about my mother. And then at the same time, my relationship with my father had sort of gotten pushed to the side. He had gotten remarried, had two new kids. So, you know, there's the whole... Sounds very familiar. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so at some point, um, I just kind of got to the point where I realized that I wasn't having a relationship with him. And it seemed very much in the same way that at that Wesley was not having a relationship with father, obviously for a different reason, but 
And whenever I watch those episodes, um, I believe it was the episode Family, uh, season four, episode two or one, depending on uh, if you watch it on Netflix or not. You know, he gets the holodeck program of his father speaking to him. And the way that they set up that scene and, and the way that um, I forget the actor who played Jack, but um, he just did such a great job of connecting with Wesley over this span of time. And what I kind of saw was, you know, if if my father, um, well, I should step back to, I should say that my my grandfather on my on my dad's side, he left my grandmother. He basically, like after World War II in the 50s, I guess they were looking for teachers in the Middle East. And he was a teacher and he basically just packed up his bags and he left. Wow. He left my dad and he left my, my aunt. Um, and I think they were, they were born in 55. And so I think they were just tiny little kids. And so he never, my father never really got to know his father. I mean, they, they had kind of like kept up over the years, but he never really knew him. So when things started to get kind of strained between him and I, I kind of laid it all out there. And I said, you know, I want to be uh, a part of your family. I want me to, um, you know, I, I basically don't want the same thing that happened with your father and you to happen to me and, and, and him. And I think he really took that to heart. And, um, and I just kind of see that if Jack had been there for Wesley, I think they would have, they would have had a great relationship and we would have seen, uh, the character Wesley change in ways that I think would have been really great. Um, and so that's one of the things that we're trying to explore, uh, in Star Trek futures. And obviously that was a long answer to. No, to but it's very interesting because this is, you're focusing on a character that's generally disliked by fans, Wesley Crusher. Right. And, Although I think that people have come around to him a little bit more in recent years, particularly because Will Wheaton as a person has really sort of, he's a great guy and I think he's redeemed Wesley in the eyes of fans. Maybe when we go back and we watch it now a little bit. Right, right. But it's interesting to know what leads you to want to focus on them and particularly to tell this story. And we joke a lot here on Trek FM about Beverly being an absent mother on the ship. That I mean, we know she loves Wesley, but as you've talked about in some of your notes that I've read about Futures, she gets really caught up in things in sickbay and kind of doesn't know where Wesley is running around the ship <laughs> getting right, into things. Right. So we, we joke about her in that sense a lot, although we do know that she loves Wesley. And of course, she is the parental figure since he lost his father. At the same time, Picard is like a father figure to Wesley as well. Now, in your story, Picard's not there because your story takes place on the Enterprise C with Lieutenant Commander Jack Crusher and Lieutenant Beverly Crusher. Right. And Wesley is, is younger there. So, so tell me a little bit more about your story and, and how you are going to talk about Wesley's life and Jack and Beverly's life together on the Enterprise C. Um, so because Jack is now in the picture, we're going to get to see Wesley and Beverly in a different light than we saw in TNG. You know, there's a lot of complaints, like you said, like... Uh, Wesley was just a kid running around doing like crazy stuff, blah, blah, blah. And, 
and and Beverly was absent sometimes. Yes. So I just kind of wanted to explore the idea that, you know, when you do have a family unit that is comprised of more people, it doesn't matter what gender or race or whatever, it does make a difference. It does make a difference on the, on the kid. Um, and you know, yes, Picard was a father figure to him, but it's in, I feel like it was always in the same way that, you know, like a stepfather would be to a son. It's, it's it's never going to have that same deep emotional impact. Well, not only that, but like you, you talked about a little bit in your family. So with my father as well, my parents split when I was five and I was around my dad a little bit until I was 10. And then he was gone until I was in university. And then we sort of came back together and we got to know each other and we became close and he passed away a couple of years ago. So now, you know, like Wesley, my, my dad's gone, but, but I'm an adult now. So it's a little bit different, but at the same time, because there was that gap, even though we became close again, it wasn't in the way that like my children are with me as a father. It's more like your friends, but it's not the father figure at that right. point. Exactly. And that's, and that's exactly what we're trying to explore with Star Trek Futures is what, what is the future of their relationship that we never got to see in TNG? I just want to show that this kind of this family unit can exist in a way that um, is, is fun, that's entertaining, and that has deep emotional impact when those characters have to make really tough decisions. I put Wesley at an age where he almost still kind of has that, that childlike innocence, but at, at this point in his life, he's beginning to discover that his actions make a profound difference on what happens in everyone around him's life. And so when, when we saw Wesley as a teenager, he was just kind of like, you know, I don't know like how I'm developing into a person. Whereas I'm trying to lay the groundwork for the basis for making those decisions of of how to live on a starship. And I, I, I want to explore that uh, just for, my own fruition. Um, you know, we never, we never really got to see Wesley as a little kid. I think it will be fun for younger people. I think it will be fun for people that can connect with, with those characters in this family situation. Let's talk about the timeline a little bit. You mentioned the timeline and there are a couple of aspects to it here. First of all, there is the timeline, the fact that we're on the enterprise C. So this is earlier on before TNG I mentioned that Beverly is Lieutenant Beverly Crusher here, and she's kind of coming up through the ranks as a physician in Starfleet. But there's a twist to this, which is that this is set in the alternate timeline, or actually alternate reality is probably the better term for this, even though I also tend to refer to it as an alternate timeline. Mm -hmm. But it's the alternate reality created when Nero went back in time, which brings us the Abrams-verse. There's been a lot of talk about what will the next Star Trek series be, and some fans want to see a rebooted Next Generation, which I personally have no interest in at all, but some people want to see a rebooted Next Generation in the Abramsverse timeline even. It's kind of sort of what you're doing here. Um, It's kind of sort of what I'm doing. Um, Yeah, I would definitely not 
enjoy a reboot of TNG. I think reboots can only go as far as as maybe laying the groundwork. I don't think you should reboot anything personally. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that's not what you're doing, really. You're not rebooting TNG, but you are bringing a few characters that we know into this alternate reality. Yeah, one of the, I think one of the best episodes of TNG was yesterday's Enterprise. Yeah. Um, and that's partially why I wanted to use the Enterprise C. I love that ship. And Captain Garrett was amazing. You just, you knew she was a competent commander. She knew her duty. She did it well. And I always thought like, that we, I would love to have a chance to see more action with her. And so setting this in the alternate timeline or the alternate reality solves the issue of, well, how do we bring Jack and Wesley together? Mm-hmm. How do I fit into that, that space where I don't necessarily have to totally stick to canon and what we've seen stylistically, thematically uh, to that time, um, but mostly just to be able to tell the stories of these things that I really enjoyed in TNG uh, that we really only got to see for a very, very brief moment. Obviously, the the relationship with uh, with Jack and Wesley didn't really exist. And then the Enterprise C was only in one episode. Even the whole ambassador class, it was just one episode and then it was gone. Um, and so I really wanted to explore that. And then the just the time frame in between TNG and, uh, and Star Trek VI, I just something about that time frame. I love the uniforms. I love the style. Um, and we are going to change some of that stuff, but I just love the idea of setting something in there. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was kind of the reason why I pushed this story into that, that time. Right. That does make it easier to tell the story, right? Because then you don't have to worry about, which is, I guess why we, that's why bad robot did that in the first place. Right. So they don't have to worry about, four decades plus of baggage from canon to deal with. Yeah. How do you see this, though? Within Star Trek, we have alternate timelines. We have alternate histories. Yesterday's Enterprise is an example where that is an event takes place and it causes two timelines to split. If you think about the idea in science that every decision we make causes a split, Mm -hmm then that gets really complicated because it could be like, if I ask you the question about uniforms next, instead of about how you're going to fund this production, then our conversation would continue in two different timelines, right? So we don't want to go down to that level. But if we think about it as like a major event takes place and something splits, that's what we saw in yesterday's Enterprise. For you as a creative and as a Star Trek fan, how does that differ from what we get with the Abrams verse when I said a moment ago that that's almost like another reality? It, for me, and I don't know if I can explain it on the spot here why, I see timeline splits within the prime universe of Star Trek that we've seen throughout different Star Trek series as being different than the Abrams verse, which feels like it's a different type of split. Right. So, um, I've done a lot of thinking about this and I can explain, I I believe there's a theory out there and I prescribe to this theory that basically the Borg just screwed it all up. And that is actually, it's the, the Borgageddon theory. Yeah. So, and it's, (laughs) and it's all cyclical too, which makes it, this is going to make anybody's head spin if they're just 
you know, casually listening. But basically, the way I've heard it explained is that the new universe, the new universe takes place in a reality which we have seen in the prime timeline. But because and it, I've actually figured this out. I've actually tried to draw it out as a okay. schematic and it gets really confusing. You have like a beautiful mind board on your wall back there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so basically what happens and, I, and I'm just saying this is the best way that I know how to explain it. And I'm not saying that uh, I totally agree with those movies because there's a lot of issues with those movies, but I'm just trying to explain it the best way I can right. um, and how that goes forward into our story is that when the Borg go back in first contact, they obviously crash land. So at that point, when they discover the Borg technology and the Borgs uh, regenerate, okay. at that they, point... In, in Enterprise, they, they in discovered Enterprise. in the Arctic, yeah. Yes. So everything up to that point is what I considered like the original timeline, not right. prime timeline, is the original timeline. And then from that that actually progresses technology faster, which then creates the Abram verse because now we have, we have extra technology. We have scans of this ship that they were able to put together. And we have technology that is in Antarctica or wherever the heck it was um, that enables us to create this new reality or timeline where we can now envision what, when we come into what was TOS is now the new, the new reality. Um, and so we're following in that for the reasons I already talked about, but then, um, yeah, our ship is different. Our uniforms are different. Um, pretty much everything's going to be different. So the Borg screwed it all up. The Borg did screw it all up. There Um, also is that theory, which is, it's similar to the one that you're talking about. In fact, maybe it's the same theory that, Voyager takes place in an alternate timeline mm-hmm. because of what happened in First Contact. And and I suppose part of Deep Space Nine would also take place in an alternate timeline. That one becomes more difficult to figure out because you've got like the same people. I, I mean, I right. guess some event could change, but whatever. Do you read the comics, the Star Trek ongoing comics? I read... Um uh, I read Countdown and I read Countdown into Darkness to into Darkness. just try okay. to try to explain the the story of how they actually got to right. 09. Well, what's interesting about what you described is that, and I don't remember which issue it is in, but there is an issue where Kirk as a child is in his room, the, the Kirk that we see at the beginning of 2009, and he's dreaming and they're showing these ships. And the NX-01 Enterprise that they show in his vision looks exactly like the NX-01 that we know from the television show, mm-hmm. which sort of supports the idea that up until what happened with the Borg, it was the same timeline. Yeah. And now things changed. But when we see that ship, it's exactly Archer's ship. So design-wise, that was all the same up until that point. I don't know if that's what they were going for when they did the artwork. Probably not. But it could be read. Yeah, there, probably. Right? I wouldn't give them yeah. that much credit. But yeah, and that falls in line with regeneration as the turning point as when the timeline splits right. in terms right. of the way that the technology looks, at least in my opinion. Exactly. 
Well, we could argue this all day. Well, it's it's interesting because a lot of people are going to go, oh, you're setting the story in the Abrams verse timeline. Hmm, yeah, I'm not and so my, sure about that, but there's a reason behind it. Yeah, my one line reason is there is no way that we could tell this story and not have to explain it with some ridiculous, you know, other alternate reality that we just happen to create. You know, right. we're trying to stick with what has been set out on film and explain it in the best way that we can. That makes right. sense. Well, let's talk about the uniforms, actually. I want to go to those next because you mentioned them a minute ago. I love the uniforms in your concept art. They're really sharp. I mean, if I were in Starfleet, I want to wear these uniforms. <laughs> they're, they're really, really sharp. Great. Because the maroon uniforms introduced in the Wrath of Khan have always been my favorite Starfleet uniforms. My second favorite are the uniforms from First Contact, which I actually think of as the DS9 uniforms because mm-hmm. they got the most play on that show. Right. And I like them because they're subdued with the black and the gray and you've got the colored tunics underneath. You've kind of merged these two a bit and taken cues from the Abramsverse uniforms, which I also like. I like the formal uniforms in the Abramsverse because they feel more like real uniforms that you would have like mm-hmm. and it's weird when they go to the ship and they get on the ship and then they take the gray jackets off and then you can see all the bright colors and i'm thinking yeah. like, why do you feel like you need to wear the bright colors when you're on the ship but when you're not on the ship you're going to be gray i don't exactly quite understand that other than they had the colors on the original series and so we needed to use them so you've created some really really sharp uniforms here tell me a little bit about why you're doing this both from a creative standpoint and also a practical one with production. Um, so from a creative standpoint, I love those uniforms that you already had talked about. Uh, the Monster Maroon is probably my favorite uniform. Those movies are classic. Wrath of Khan is like the best Star Trek movie ever. So I wanted to pay homage to that. Um, and then, yeah, in Star Trek Into Darkness, I really love those formal uniforms. They, it's just so slick. It, is, it comes off as very professional to me. It does, um, yeah. which, which I always thought, um, you know, I love the original series uniforms. I love the, the new movies uniforms. But yeah, they, they didn't seem to give the impression that this was like a very professional organization. Right. You know, with the original series, it feels, it makes more sense to me when I watch TOS and they have the colored uniforms, maybe just because I grew up watching it. But it's also the lighting on this ship as well with all the colors on the walls and everything. But in the Abrams verse, they walk into this very, very stark white ship and then they take those gray jackets off and you've got these super bright colors everywhere. Right. Right. Well, and I think, you know, because on TOS, they were trying to promote Technicolor. And so sure. everything had to be super, super bright. Yeah. I mean, we saw in the cage, like it was very subdued. So yeah, I, and obviously coming as a, a, a TNG fan, um, I like that color scheme. Um, the red as being command rather than um, the the gold for whatever reason. I just like that more. It's stronger. It, yeah. Uh, same for me too. Like with Enterprise, I'm glad they went back to gold as command to maintain continuity in the mm-hmm. timeline. Right. But red says command to me when I see it and gold doesn't. So I like the decision. And especially in TNG too, it was, it was more, it wasn't as much of a gold as it was kind of like a mustard. It's like a mustard. Yeah. 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 So then moving on to kind of the practical reason for the uniforms, I looked into what was available at the time, um, what the cost was going to be trying to find that fabric 
um, the wool elastique. And it just, it sorted to kind of pile on. And it was like, if I was going to remake these uniforms the best of the way that I could, it was going to be like crazy expensive, crazy time consuming. I was going to have to do it myself, et cetera, et cetera. And so I decided, well, you know, I, I really love those in a darkness um, uniforms. Let's try to bridge the gap between what we see there and then uh, with the Wrath of Khan, Monster Maroon. So I wanted to stick with the Monster Maroon actual design um, just because I thought it's very regal. It's very professional looking uniform. But I thought the switch to gray would be a little bit more subdued, subdued, like you said. And then there were a couple issues that I actually had with the original Monster Maroon in terms of rank. Uh, and part of it comes from a practical production side. Part of it comes from uh, putting myself in the story and trying to think of if I was on a ship interacting with people in this uniform, you know, were there circumstances that just didn't seem right to me? And there were. And um, so basically... In terms of rank, I knew that I wanted to use the TNG color scheme. Um, I could have put it on the jacket somewhere, but then I thought, well, from a practical standpoint, I can only make so many of these jackets. I'm going to have to reuse them, so I can't put the color on the jacket. Well, what if I use the collar to denote what department you're in? Just like the the first contact uh, jackets are like that. And then I also thought, okay, well, that's nice, because now if I take the jacket off... Um, okay, everybody will know what department I'm in, but then also, okay, um, if I take the jacket off for whatever reason, all of the rank is displayed on the jacket itself. And so if I'm some like crewman, you know, down, like scrubbing out the the toilets or whatever, I've never even like met the captain and he comes marching down there like blah, blah, blah. And he doesn't have his jacket on who the hell is this guy? I don't know who this guy is. You know, <laughs> well, I have to say though, if you're a crewman and you don't know who the captain of your ship is, I think you're true, but I mean, be kicked out of Starfleet, but I right. know what you mean, right? Like yeah. not the captain necessarily, but another, another officer who right, you right. should know, but you never interact with. Right. Yeah. So what I basically did is I just used, um, uh, like a pip design from TNG, yeah. put it on the collar. And that solves that problem. Yeah. Um, I do have a, a newer pip design that kind of unifies the look between all the different pips only because, again, I was only going to make so many of them. Um, I needed to be able to just basically like Velcro them onto the right. thing. And I couldn't do that with the actual the way that the, the pips are constructed for TNG is they're kind of pins that go through the mm-hmm. back um, and then the, the buttons go on the front. And I thought, well, I could do individual pins, but then it's going to be a pain because then I, if they're not spaced right, it's not going to look right. So I wanted just one unit that I could just take on and off. And right. then the the collars are just like a dicky collar for the jacket. So those are easily removable. You know, you can put them on any different person. Um, so they're everything is very much uh, reusable. And then the only difference being is the pip that can go on or off, et cetera. Right. Um, so yeah, so the pips um, are, are the TNG rank denotations, but it has uh, a, like a, a rounded uh, backboard that is similar to the backboard that's on the um, Wrath of Khan chest pin. Um, so it's a gold outline with a white background and that's for normal officers. And then for flag officers, 
we go to a back a black background like we've seen on TNG. Um, and then also for provisional officers, which I'm not going to have in the show, but uh, I've thought about it. You can still use the slashes for the provisional officers. So do your flag officers, do they get to mod their belt buckles like the admirals do in the TNG era where they get to pimp out their uniforms? Uh, yeah, uh, there's, <laughs> there's only going to be one admiral that we're going to see. Um, and they're going to be sitting. So I don't think we're going to see the belt, oh, but, man. but they are going to have the two pips on either side. Okay, I mean, the, right. the, the, uh, the flag officer uniform in TNG, like changed every time you saw it changed one. like six times, I think. For yeah. The and there are some really ugly ones too. On so. one. <laughs> Let's, we have a whole running bit on the network now about Admiral's uniforms and the Starfleet yeah. school of fashion. <laughs> you do know right. that when they're, what they do is they come up with all kinds of concepts for Starfleet uniforms. They test them out on the admirals first. That's why you've got this mishmash of, of stuff mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think about denoting department by the boots, like having red boots and gold boots and blue boots? No, I never thought about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know if that would work quite well. It might kind of turn into like kind of a clown sort of deal with yellow, <laughs> yellow boots walking around, but, could um, be. the, the pants but then are, if someone were coming down the corridor and you were hiding and you could only see their feet, you would know. Oh, that's just a, that's just a lowly <laughs> science officer. I can take him out. Well, Wesley, he's crawling around the ship. Remember he's a kid in your story. He's crawling around. He might be peeking under. Right. <laughs> so yeah. So the, the boots and the pants, um, are just, just standard, pants they're yeah. they're not the they're not i don't even know what type of pants they had in the uh in the t-walk uniform it had like kind of that high um like flare thing going yeah um so we're not going to have that it's going to be straight basically when i went to my tailor and i said i want to make this uniform it needs to look like a suit it can't look like a costume you know and it it has to look professional that's what i told her she said okay so let, let me ask you, some people I know who are doing these series, they've actually learned to sew and they're making their own uniforms. I, I saw that Tommy Kraft is working with you on Futures, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So Tommy learned how to sew to make the uniforms for Horizon. Now, you just mentioned a tailor. So you're having someone make these uniforms for you. And how Correct. much is it costing you per uniform? Because I know these things are not cheap to make. Well, um, the prototype one that we've done right now is basically the full on uniform as it's constructed from a pattern from um, Wrath of Khan. And that one's about, it's not too bad actually with um, all the, um, the material and everything. It's about 300 a jacket, um, which is, it's not super bad, but Taylor work. Yeah. Yeah. um, What we're going to do is we're going to take that design. We're going to kind of like really figure out, okay, this is the look that we want. Cause obviously it's, it's different. We're going to make that into a simpler jacket, I, more like the the TNG jacket where it zips from the back. Okay. Um, so because one of the biggest issues, and this has been a learning experience for me, getting that flap to line up on the front is a real pain. Um, I think that's why Kirk liked to just leave it open. Then he right. didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> and, and it's really hot yeah, <laughs> every I time bet. I go over there. And, and we're making the, the ones that we're making are all wool. Um, except for the lining. So again, with a professional look, I didn't want to cheap out with acrylic fabrics or, you know, like 99 cent fabrics. I mean, everything is, I'm paying for the fabric, um, but yeah, it's, it's hot. So, you know, having something that they actors can take on and off easily, not have to 
snap a million snaps on the chest is, will be nice. Um, and then obviously for reusability, when you have those snaps and you have the jacket basically fitted to every actor, if you try to put that jacket on a different actor, it's, it's not going to line up or right. you're going to have all this extra fabric and it's not going to look right. So what we can do is we can make a more general size jacket um, that zips from the back that has the flap. Uh, the flap will still work. Um, you can still open the flap, but it's going to be actually attached to the front of the jacket. So it will look the same, but the fit won't be dependent on how big the person around is. Right. It's very challenging. I mean, this was a challenge they had on this, on the television series as well. I mean, they could only make X number of jackets. Right. And, and so, they had, and they had so much money right, dollars, to so. work with. Right. So it is a big challenge. Cool. Well, I encourage everyone to go to StarTrekFutures.com slash artwork.html and look at these uniforms because they're really sharp. I mean, this this image of Captain Garrett here, very, very nice um, uniform design. They're very nice. So let's go to the ship for a minute. You mentioned earlier, well, we talked earlier about the fact that you're using Andrew's original Ambassador class design. So a quick question for our ship nerds out there, because we have a few of them here on the network as well. And I guess I have to admit to being one too, given that I have little official Starship collection ships scattered around me right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) as we're recording. Many people have probably seen the original Ambassador class design on the Ships of the Line calendar. And of course, it was on the wall on the Enterprise D where they had the little gold ships. Right. For season one. Eventually broke. For season one, yeah. Yeah. So... Why did you decide to go with this design instead of the more familiar one that we saw in yesterday's Enterprise? Um, just to be bluntly honest, I didn't really like the design of that Enterprise so much. I just felt like it was very bulky. It was very utilitarian. Yeah. And when you, especially when you come from the Excelsior class, that is a very like long, sleek ship. You know, it's very, it's very thin. And then obviously with uh, Andrew's design of the D, that's very organic. And I felt like the the Enterprise that, or the Ambassador class that Sternbach did, while I do like some of its features, I never really was attached to that design. I really like the Enterprise C as an idea um, because of what it did, obviously, for history. Right. Um, and so when I was when I was kind of putting together the idea of what I wanted in, in this miniseries, I knew that I wanted to use the Enterprise C and I you know, was looking through pictures and pictures and then, oh, I found this ambassador class and I was like, oh, this looks different. I really like this. And I found a bunch of uh, renderings that Tobias Richter had done and I just, I fell in love with the design of the ship. I feel like it brings together the perfect amount of elements from the D from the B and, and just merges them into this very beautiful, very, um, I want to say organic, but not in the same way that the D is the, the D feels very natural. The D feels like it could come out of nature and it takes the, it takes the mechanical elements of the B and that natural, um, the natural elements of the D and just merges them in a really, really amazing way. And I just, I just came to love it. And I, I am so thankful to Andrew Probert for letting me use the design. I know that he's super happy from my emails with him about just seeing it in motion. 
Um, and, and I feel like it's kind of like a service since we never did get to see it, um, to at least, to at least use it Uh, a, because it's beautiful, but because I think it deserves to be in Star Trek. One of the things I started thinking about, um, and it's kind of a little bit off topic, but in TNG, we see the Excelsior class of ship like in every season. And I'm like, it's the workhorse of the fleet, the, the Excelsior and the Miranda, they are the two workhorses of the fleet, right? Right. But in, in, in the timeline, what happened to the ambassador class? Did they like all get destroyed? Like everywhere? <laughs> right. Like the, that, that being <laughs> exactly. that they found on that one planet. I've got it doesn't it. make sense. Does it right? It doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. All these Excelsior ships would still be around. And right. all, and the ambassador class, we never ever see them. Though I do yeah. believe there was one ambassador class, and it was obviously the Sternbach one, in one of the Dominion battles in DS9. Yeah, I was just thinking and it's about like, that right like now. Yeah. Super tiny. Yeah, yeah. Just in the background somewhere. Well, that was like whatever ship we've got, let's throw it in here. Exactly. We need fifty thousand of them or whatever. I mean, you start to see a lot of of Defiant class ships in those battles as well, which kind of bothers me because the Defiant was supposed to be this special prototype ship that was overpowered and they mothballed it and Cisco got it out. And eventually we do see others. And then there's the Sao Paulo, which comes back and gets renamed the Defiant Right when the Defiant is destroyed. But nevertheless, it seemed odd that there were so many of them that you start seeing in these massive fleets. Well, when did yeah. they build those? I don't know. But Anyway, back to the ambassador class here. I'm glad you're using it because I prefer this design as well. And pretty much everyone I've ever talked to who knows about the original design versus the one we saw in yesterday's Enterprise prefers the original design. Right. And so, you know, another reason why I'm using the new reality timeline, it just it makes it so much easier not to have to explain something that Mm. oh it's different you know because because everything is different in this i can use this design which and and realistically that was like at least 50 percent of the reason why yeah you know i was i was setting it in the the new timeline so 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 you earned your ship nerd card (laughs) thank you (laughs) for doing that i was getting worried you're gonna like (laughs) you know oh what's between junction a and something oh All right. Well, let's go on to a couple of last things here, but a very important one, cast and crew. You just talked about, well, we talked about the Enterprise C and you mentioned Tobias Richter, and I understand that Tobias Richter is working with you on this project, which I love hearing because he's absolutely brilliant. Uh, The stuff that he's done for Alec Peters and Axanar with the battles that you see in Prelude to Axanar are beyond gorgeous mm-hmm. and Tommy who I mentioned also is helping out with that stuff as well tell me about everyone not just Tobias but everyone who's working on this project behind the scenes and also how you're casting this um so basically the people that are involved so far we have Tobias we have Tommy so basically Tobias is providing us any shot that has the enterprise C in it and what Tommy's going to be doing is he's going to be um providing any additional 3D models from scratch, basically. You know, Tobias is amazing, uh, but he doesn't work for free. And right. I don't I don't have that much money. So right. um, I kind of have to, you know, take things when I can get them. Um, but Tommy has been super awesome. And Tommy is, is very, very good at this 3D modeling as well. He's done, for those who haven't seen it, 
people know because we've had Tommy on the show here, but the NX04 Discovery that Tommy has done looks amazing. Yeah, it looks spectacular. And so yeah. I'm, I'm really happy that, and we've, we've sort of formed a friendship um, in talking about this project and, and Horizon. And I'm super happy that he's, he's on the team and he's going to uh, be assisting in that matter. Um, like I said, I have uh, a tailor with a tailor shop here in San Diego that's making that. I'm using uh, uh, Mr. Ron Voss, who uh, was the construction foreman and production coordinator for both uh, the next generation and for Voyager. Uh, he didn't work on DS9 because that was on a different set. Um, and so uh, I just happened to get his number randomly from a friend who was having a beer with him. And uh, he was like, hey, uh, this guy worked on Star Trek. You should totally talk to him about your project. And so I went and had a beer with him. And um, so basically what he's gonna be doing is uh, once we get kind of our blueprints figured out, um, He's going to look at them, kind of put together like a, a spec sheet on what we're going to need and um, kind of assist in just sort of a, um, you know, consultant role. You know, I don't think he's I don't think he's going to be on for kind of like day to day sort of stuff. But I mean, right. just that is going to be spectacular because we're going to be using a lot of um, actual sets. I'm going to try to use actual sets as, as much as I can um, and I can kind of explain. You, you said something about the visual effects, the way that the show is going to look. Um, I can kind of go into a little bit of that. Yeah, I, I, I want to know about that as well. So you describe it on your website as Futures is heavily inspired by a nostalgic view of mid to late 20th century sci-fi. Drawing from these influences, Star Trek Futures will rely on clever cinematography and musical interplay to create a sense of wonder and imagination set in the Star Trek universe. W what exactly does that mean in terms of highly stylized visuals, which you, you also talk about on there? How's it, how does it differ from what we've seen on Star Trek before? Well, basically, this project for me is a giant art project. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm always inspired by things that are intensely visual. Um, but also, that, that doesn't mean necessarily complex. When we look at uh, a film like 2001, for example, which is just like the foundation of a lot of my sci-fi influence, those sets and the way that they film that it's very simplistic, but it just gives this impact of what they're trying to say with the scene. And that's what I'm trying to capture. Uh, obviously, I'm no Kubrick, but um, I think if I can get a percentage of that, I think it will come off really well. I'm, I'm coming at it, again, as an art project, and I want to create something that comes off as art and not necessarily just entertainment. Something that people have asked me is like, oh, we're going to have big space battles and things like that. And I, and I say, yes, there's going to be some space battles, but we have seen and with uh, best of both worlds, you don't necessarily have to have a big, right. you know, action packed space battle to convey the emotion of what's going on. I mean, when they when the Enterprise flies through Wolf 359, you're just in this graveyard of burning ships and you never even see the Borg attack these, these ships. And yet you still have this huge emotional impact. And so that's, I'm, I'm trying to take my influences from sci-fi that didn't have big budgets, that didn't have the technology that we have now, and use those influences to uh, make a fan independent level production more akin to 
to those films rather than trying to achieve something that they would in the movie these days with 3d effects and all in green screen and right. stuff. And, and don't get me wrong. Uh, Tommy's doing an amazing job with green screen, but it, uh, you know, it's, it's never going to feel exactly like someone is there pushing a screen, turning yeah. a knob, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's an interesting mix because one thing that I like about the JJ Abrams films and the way that he approaches films is that he does try to use real objects and real sets and real places. And people complain about the brewery being engineering. I don't care that much. I mean, it's kind of weird, but I don't care that much about it. What I like about it is that people are actually running across physical objects, you know, right. that are, it's a real place. At the same time, you talk about space battles where what you're talking about, even in first contact, when the Enterprise comes in and it's sort of a well, the battle's going on in first contact. You're actually talking about the best of both worlds where they come in and they see the the burning um, right. husks of the ships and all. That conveys the emotion. It's the difference between the newer films, Star Trek and other films where like everything has to be shown and it has to be big and action and things are exploding versus this is the emotional impact that it has on our characters, which for me is more about Star Trek. Exactly. And, and so, so you're you capturing that. Right, right. And, you know, when people complain to me that, oh, I don't like your production because it's set in this, in the new timeline, I'm like, okay, well, that's great, but we are not doing, we're not, I think what they associate with is, oh, well, the new Star Trek didn't do this for me because it was all action. It was all this, all this, right. blah, blah, blah. You know, that's great. They're, that's bad robot. That's not me. That's not the people that I'm working with. Um, I'm, I'm using, obviously I'm using that to tell my story, but, um, I'm relying more on my other influences of sci-fi that has lasted for as long as it has to present the visual appeal for what our show is going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the motion picture has some great sets on it. Obviously it's a little bit slow. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's just because I, I wasn't around in the seventies or the sixties. I just, I have this nostalgic view of that era as being so idealistic with their designs. Yeah. Um, I recently watched um, a documentary about the making of alien, the first alien and hearing the designers speak about every little detail, every little, you know, symbol actually means something. And that's because you have to think it logically through as to that this thing needs to do something. It needs to be practical, but they did it in a way that's not big and flashy. And so right. I'm trying to, I'm trying to pull that, that side of the influence and make it realistic, not just flashy because it needs to be flashy because it's L cars, you know, it, right. Okay. It has to actually do something. Well, figuring that out, of course, comes down to concept art. Initially, when you're going through all that, tell me about all of this great concept art on your website. Who is doing this for you? Um, so that's by an artist named Marcus Lovadina. He's originally from Germany, and he just recently moved to the UK. And uh, one thing that I knew that I wanted um, from day one in Star Trek Futures was amazing artwork. And I was lucky enough to find him, and he was willing to work with me you know, with the budget that I have and give me an overriding vision of what 
I want Star Trek Futures to be. I haven't brought in other artists, mainly because I want it to be a singular vision. Like I said before, it's an art project for me. And so everything has to be of sort of one design, one aesthetic. And he's just done an incredible job with that artwork. Something that I always really enjoyed was kind of the speed painting style. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what his style is. And it's, you know, it's it's new and it's modern, but it's also very organic. It looks like an oil painting almost. Mm-hmm. And um, I know for him, you know, he's very proud of, of the stuff he's done for us. And I'm extremely proud of that stuff. So yeah, if you go to startrekfutures.com backslash artwork, you can see his concepts for, of course, the characters and the uniforms, but also the worlds. Um, I wanted to, initially, that's what we um, linked up on was uh, the world concept arts, because I knew that because I'm setting this in this totally new star system, I wanted to really give uh, a feel for what these places were like. Um, And so those were the first pieces of art that we did. And we went on to uh, doing the character concepts. And I work, I basically work with him every week, just via email, bouncing ideas off each other. He gives me feedback. I give him feedback. Um, We've done some stuff that hasn't really worked out and we've been able to like change that. So it's been, it's been kind of like a partnership in terms of making, you know, futures look as, as well as I would hope it could look. Um, And that's because of the artwork. It looks beautiful so far. Yeah. I really like the art style very much. What about casting? Have you gotten around to casting yet or is that something that's going to be coming up for you? Uh, it's going to be coming up. Um, so kind of the the schedule for the production that I'm on is uh, we're going to be shooting two short films at the end of this year. And so we've been kind of preparing slowly to get to that goal. Those are basically just going to be uh, like two 10-minute short films that give an impression of what the style is going to be like give impressions what the actors may or may not look like. I might be able to get people for these and I might not, they might not stay on or I'll find somebody else for the actual miniseries when I get to that. But um, so in 2015 is when I'm going to shift to primary production for the miniseries part of it. Um, So casting is going to be coming up, but there's a lot of other things that have to get done before that, that Mm -hmm. I'm mainly focusing on. And two, you know, there's only so much that I can do with my time, with everybody else's time. And so I feel like if I were to go and find people right now, it's like, okay, well, in December, we're going to film this, make sure you're available. And, you know, that's like, you know, five months away now. So, right, right. Well, let's talk about how you're going to fund this because we've talked a bit about some of the expenses here and it's never cheap to produce one of these series. How are you going to fund Star Trek Futures? So, like I said before, our primary focus right now is on these two short films. And basically everything for those is just out of pocket. It's basically if I have any spare money at all, it goes it goes to this project. Past those, uh, what I'm using those for is, again, to give an impression of the style and see if people even really like the idea to the point of, hey, I want to give you money to make more right. of this. So once those are done, once those are released, we'll be able to gauge the reception for those. Uh, and then we'll take it to Kickstarter and you go, go. And, uh, based on that reception, based on kind of how we're doing at that time, um, we'll decide kind of how we're going to split it up. Cause I know with, um, some of the other fan film series, 
They've done Kickstarters that have funded a couple episodes. They have done Kickstarters that fund a single episode. Um, some of them that are just films like Horizon, that's for like one film in total. Right. And you kind of have to play to the audience at the time because, you know, if they're unsure about it, they're not going to give to you numerous times. They might give right. to you one time. So kind of the way that we have it set up is the uh, the story spans five episodes, um, which are kind of the normal hour long, but 45, 44 minutes long format. And so we're going to, we're going to decide how we want to split that up when we, when we get to that point. Okay, great. Well, it's a really smart approach producing these initial films because from what I have gauged from Kickstarter campaigns that have been successful or not successful, those that actually have a polished product of some kind like that to show up front are much more successful than just, hey, I've got this idea for a series. Here's some concept art, no matter how beautiful it is. Right. Actually being able to show something more tangible like that does lead to a lot more success. Yeah, it gives it gives people a good impression. Um, and then it also shows too, it's like, hey, we're able to do this on this budget. Right. Just think of how good it can be uh, if we actually get an actual budget, at least more than pocket change, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, with this project, I'm basically building it from the ground up. And so I've had to buy all all new camera gear, like I said, design these uniforms from scratch, go, you know, it's been, it's been about four or five months and granted, you know, our tailor has a functioning shop and so she can't deal with me every day, but we're working through these issues of how we want it to look. And it's, it's, it's basically that T-Walk uniform, but there are some changes to it. So, you know, it's been going slow, but that's actually been really good financially. And then also just have time to really think about how you want to go about things. I just finished, um, the um, both scripts for the shorts are done currently, but I'm kind of just putting the polish on them. Um, and one of those is is done and ready to go. Um, we did storyboards for that short already. It was unfortunate. We actually did bring another artist on to do storyboards um, for us, but he yeah, he hurt his hand pretty bad, and so oh yikes, yeah, uh, especially for an artist. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Marcus was able to uh, come in and, and finish those up. We ha- actually had to do them from scratch because their their styles are so different. Okay, which uh, uh, which was lucky that we were able to do that. Um, you know, like everybody has full time jobs, obviously. So it's it's we're doing this because we enjoy it, because we're artists, and that's what we want to do. Is we want to practice the craft of of being an artist, and so it's it's more than just making a fan film in that we love Star Trek and we, we want to be in that world, but also we, we want to make it something that we're proud of as artists. Definitely. Well, it really shows. Well, if people want to find out more about Star Trek futures and keep up with the development of these shorts and then stay in touch so that when the Kickstarter and the Indiegogo come around, they can contribute to that. Where should they go? Um, well, our main website is StarTrekFutures.com. Um, the place with uh, the most updates is Facebook, and that's just Facebook.com backslash StarTrekFutures. Um, we also have a Twitter. We have a Google+. Basically, if you search Star Trek Futures, uh, you'll, you'll find it. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much the best way. If, if you're interested at all in, in helping with the production, you know, we are looking for people. There's a contact page on the website. Again, you know, we're, you know, we're, 
we're a small team of people. We don't have a ton of money. Like I was approached by some people and it's like, Oh, okay. You know, you're, you're a big shot. I don't, you know, I don't have a couple hundred thousand dollars laying around obviously, but, um, you know, if, if you're willing to commit your time and you enjoy what we're doing so far and you like the story and you want to help out, then, you know, we'd love to have you. Very good. And what if people want to find you? Are you on Twitter personally? Uh, yeah. So if you go to about.me slash Dan Thale, it's T-H-A-L-E. Um, that's got links to all my personal pages. Okay. Yeah. But I'm on, I'm pretty much on everything as well. All right. Very good. Well, Dan, thanks so much for your time tonight. It was really interesting to hear about this project and hear about the story and Wesley Crusher, a story about Wesley Crusher. <laughs> well, thank you, Chris. It's been really, really a pleasure talking with you. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed learning more about Star Trek Futures today. I think it's a very interesting concept, and I can't wait to see where Dan goes with it. But this isn't the only thing that we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. They're not going to just do something crazy and be like, what if we did Star Trek? But on Earth, what if we did Star Trek, but, you know, with with more explosions or whatever? Wouldn't that be cool? And and giant robots. Earl Grey. Between a combination of Riker's beard and the spandex, you could pretty much identify what season you were watching just by those two markers alone. No beard Riker? Must be season one. Pinstriping in the background, but Riker has a beard? Must be season two. The Ready Room. The Prime Directive is there and all these captains are constantly having to break it because it's obviously such a rigid rule right and uh you can't tell a story with such rigid rules so you go back to it's television it's drama the orb it's never clear like is costa mojan is that the name of a person from long ago or is it the name of a group of people and so you're saying that in the prophet's language costa mojan is the name of the paw race Right, that's what they call the paw race. To the journey! Think about how horrible it would be perceived by the audience to see Neelix beaten up ruthlessly. Some people would really enjoy that. That's true, I'm talking about normal people with hearts and souls. Okay, so those people... <laughs> Commentary, Trek stars. Um, this means that really now, sort of, the, the three of us are responsible for really getting the movie to, to, to what it's going to be, and, and there's a thing, okay, what the movie we write is the movie that's going to get made, which is... A really cool feeling, actually. Warp 5. You know, Spock and Tuvok are two Vulcans. And so I feel like if you brought ten more into the room, to say that they're all going to be the same is really a boring race. It's, even right. if they're logical, they shouldn't have the same personalities. Melodic treks. But J- when J.J. Abrams came on, he was like, just in like casual... <laughs> T-shirt and jeans. T-shirt, and, yeah. And because he'd just come from the set of... Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a good so, excuse. Continuing mission. And there's this moment where you pass into it, and you're not only on a TV set, you're you're on a, a TV set that is a recreation of the Enterprise, and then that goes away, and then you're on the Enterprise. Literary Treks. This is what I expect from the uh, ongoing comics. This is kind of what I think we've wanted is, is just right. to have this crew yeah, start to feel like the original series in some ways. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can get the shows everywhere that you get your podcasts. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, we're all over the place now. And you can also get episodes of Continuing Mission and all of the shows that you just heard in the Trek of Film Complete Master Feed. That contains every episode of every show that we do. Speaking of iTunes, we have some reviews this week that I'd like to share with you. First of all, Phasers to Wellsby left us a five-star review titled, Keep Track of All the Fan Projects. And they said, It has been hard to keep up with everything that fans are producing in recent years. This podcast has made it a lot easier. Beyond just finding out what is being produced, this show provides great interviews that lets you see all the hard work that these dedicated fans are putting into producing the best product for all of us. Also, Trey34 left us five stars in a review titled, Very Informative on Fan Films. And Trey said, I love this show. It helps the fans of Star Trek find the new fan-made projects. It goes to the makers of the films and lets them get the word out. Very informative. So, Phasers to Wellsby and Trey34, thank you so much for your reviews. And everyone else, please leave us a review and here's why you should do it right now. We're running a special promotion where you can win some great Star Trek prizes just for reviewing Continuing Mission and the other shows on Trek FM. Reviews are very important to us, not only because we love to hear what you think about the show, but also because they impact how we place in iTunes and also on Stitcher. Reviews make it easier for other Star Trek fans to find our shows. But if you're like us, you're probably listening to the shows when you're doing things away from the computer. Maybe you're at the office working, or you're commuting, or you're washing dishes, or you're exercising, and you can't leave a review right there at that moment. We know it takes some extra time, so we wanted to give you an added incentive to share your thoughts on our shows. And that incentive takes the form of some great prizes from Star Trek, including a season of Star Trek on Blu-ray or DVD of your choice, also some Star Trek novels of your choice, official Starships collection ships from Japan, and a full collection of our original Alien art badges. All you need to do to enter is to review our shows and then let us know that you left the review. You can review each show only once, of course, but you can review all the shows that you listen to on the network, and each one of those reviews will count as an entry. You can also review shows on both iTunes and Stitcher, so it could be the same show, Continuing Mission, on Stitcher and on iTunes, and that counts as two entries. Plus, you can leave a review for the master feed, and that will also count as an entry. Winners will be drawn at random from all entries received before midnight Pacific time on July 31st, and there are two steps to entering. First is to leave the review on iTunes and or Stitcher. Second is to visit trek.fm slash review and complete the form that you find there. We'll ask you who you are, what your screen names are on iTunes and Stitcher so that we can match your real name up to your reviews. Also, which shows did you review, where did you leave the reviews, and if it's iTunes, which country did you leave the review in? And that's all there is to it, so head on out and review our shows. Remember to visit trek.fm slash review to get your name in the drawing, and we look forward to hearing from you, and thank you for your support. If you would like to leave some feedback on today's show, I would love to hear from you on that front, and there are a number of ways that you can do that. 
If you'd like to contact the network, you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM. Also on Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash trekfm. We have a community on G+. We also have forums at trek.fm slash forums. There's an option in the sidebar of our show pages where you can send us a voicemail. And we also have a contact form, trek.fm slash contact, and that will come to me by email. If you would like to follow me personally, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash C Brian Jones. And I have my own website at cbrianjones.com. So give me a follow and chat me up. I'd love to talk to you about Star Trek or Japan or whatever it is that you want to talk about. Before I let you go, I would also like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, audible.com. Audible is the best source of audiobooks that you'll find anywhere. They have more than 150,000 titles waiting for you right now, and they add hundreds of new titles every single week, so there's always something fresh for you to listen to. I've been getting books from Audible for 14 years. I have hundreds of them in my library, and I listen to them every day. It's just a wonderful resource that I absolutely love, and I know you're going to love it too. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. All you need to do is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up. Choose one of the great Star Trek books they have, or choose any other book you like. And if at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that book. But when you support Audible, you really do help us keep continuing mission coming to you every week. So I hope you'll go try them out, audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. Well, thanks again to Dan for joining me today. I hope everyone enjoyed the show. And join me again next time on this continuing mission. And let's see what's out there. <laughs>